And we're glad that you are here. And as you're seated, if you would open to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, and we'll endeavor to cover the chapter. And I'm sure we will, as the Lord allows. Genesis 14, we'll start in verse 1. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And Lord willing, we'll learn and we'll grow and we will repent and we'll be convicted and challenged and we'll grow, we'll be encouraged, we'll be edified in our faith. Genesis 14, verse 1. In the, in now, I do want to pause for just a second. Just kidding, we're not going to start yet. Um, as we read these, I just saw this in the days of Amraphel. I want to let you know that a lot of these names are uh, names from people in different countries, not Hebrew. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so you have Hebrew approximations of other language names. And now we have English approximations of Hebrew approximations of other language names. So what I want to encourage you in is do not let the inability to pronounce them in a scholarly <laughs> or winsome way, uh, don't let that discourage you from reading the Scriptures, reading it out loud, reading it to yourself um, silently. You stumble over the names, try to get all the letters if you can, but just say it <laughs> however you best find to say it, and don't think that that is a measure of your maturity in Christ, your holiness. <laughs> um, we just do the best we can with these names. Okay, so I want to encourage you in that. Now, Genesis 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the, the salt sea, Twelve years they had served Ketaleomer, but in the thirteenth year they had rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketaleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kernaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavath Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. 
After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Father, we join in the blessing and the praise of your name, Yahweh, Lord, all capital letters, because you are God most high. God, we praise you, we worship you, and Lord, we pray that that would extend to all areas of our life for your glory, in Jesus' name. Well, we've been talking about faith, looking at this man of faith, Abram. And we've said that as a way to help us remember what faith really is and what it looks like, we've said that um, just using the letters of faith, F-A-I-T-H, we can remember it by the fervent action in the hearing. We hear the Word of God. We believe the Word of God. We agree that that's what God says. And then we act passionately, fervently in what we've heard. But We've talked about it before. You, you may remember the story of the guy that was walking across the tightrope, uh, across Niagara Falls on the tightrope, and how he went across back and forth, and then he, he got a, um, a wheelbarrow, and he went back and forth with the wheelbarrow, and then he asked for volunteers to get in the wheelbarrow <laughs> and see if they would trust him to bring them back and forth across Niagara Falls. And everyone said, we agree that you can do it, but I'm not getting in that wheelbarrow. Um, and, and that was, for us, a, a picture of faith, what it means to fervently act in the hearing, in the knowing, in the believing. So the question I have for you this morning is, do you see faith in your life? Do you see faith in your life? And you might easily answer, yes, I see faith. I see faith in areas of my life, but where do you see it? What areas of your life do you see it? Maybe the better question is, what areas of your life do you not see faith at work. Now, if you don't see faith at all in your life, well, well that's an issue, that's an opportunity to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the, who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and, and how he came to earth as a man and lived perfectly, which none of us can do. He gave himself on the cross, he died for us, took our sins from us, gave us his perfection that he earned in his whole life, and then as he died, he paid the penalty for our sins, and then he rose from the grave three days later to conquer our sins, to conquer death, and then he rose victoriously, and then he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God, praying for us. And so this is a, the gospel that we need to believe, that we need to hear, that we need to know so that we can tell other people in 30 seconds, in five minutes, in 45 minutes, in our whole life. 
as we speak to people, as we live. This is the gospel. And so as we hear the gospel, as we hear the word of God, God gives us faith through that. He works in our hearts to give us faith. And as Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So then you will see faith in your life, but not seeing faith in every area of your life, whether you have believed the gospel or not, may be an even bigger issue than seeing no faith at all. Because it could mean that you have taken faith and compartmentalized it into just a little part of your life, into certain areas, which means your actions, your beliefs in God's word are only relevant where you have deemed them relevant, where, where you've said, this is okay, God, you can come into this part of my life, uh, but, but these parts I'm going to keep for myself. It could mean that your faith that you have stated to believe in isn't real. It could mean you've deceived yourself into thinking that you have faith. And that's why it may be an even worse problem, because when you know that you have no faith, you may be open to hearing. But when you think you already have faith, as soon as someone starts to talk about faith, you say, I've already got this. I'm okay. I'm doing all right on my own. So it's good to occasionally stop and, and take stock of your life and, and evaluate your life. In fact, it's not just good, it's biblical. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us, evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And it's not just occasional, that's an ongoing thing that Paul tells us to do. But we've talked about in the last few weeks some ways that we should not evaluate our faith. We should not evaluate our faith. We shouldn't think, well, I have faith because look at all of the things that I know. Right? We, that's not a picture of faith. That's a measure of things that you know. You can take tests really well. You, you could write papers really well. But that may not lead to faith when it's not acted upon, when it's not changing you, when it's not growing your love. We don't evaluate our faith based on how many miracles we can do. Right? That, that's what we're told. Um, you know, what I can make God do, that's, that's faith. That's when I have a lot of faith, when I can order God around and command this and demand that and he gives it to me. No, that's, that's not faith either, is it? So as we look for faith in our life, we remember Hebrews eleven six that it is impossible to please God without faith. But our faith cannot be compartmentalized. It can't be just certain sections, allowed areas of our life as we start to evaluate ourselves and as we start to consider faith in our life. Romans 1, Paul kind of drives this home for us. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, beginning and ending in faith. It starts with faith, it ends with faith, and it's faith all throughout. As it is written, Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. Not just the righteous shall get saved by faith, and then kind of set that aside and live their life. No, we, we live our lives by faith. What's the opposite side of that? Well, the opposite side of that is verse 18, where the wrath of God is coming. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. And so you're not living a life of faith when your faith is only on Sunday mornings or on nights where it's time to go to small group, koinonia groups. It's not when you see the emails that come on Fridays or only church times, right? Or, or only when I get in trouble. That's not living a life of faith. That's, well, using faith as sort of that kind of emergency crutch. That's not abiding in Christ 
if faith is not allowed to invade every area of your life. Now, I'm going to cut this a little bit short because I want to make sure that we have time to get to the end. But in James chapter 1, he says that faith is a deciding factor about whether God's going to answer your prayers, specifically for wisdom. God gives generously. God gives abundantly when we ask for wisdom, unless we ask while we doubt, without faith. The, The one who doubts, James says, is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. You've seen waves in the ocean, they're there and then they're gone and they come up and they swell up and and things go up and then they crash down, right? And that's the life of someone who's asking God for wisdom or not seeking wisdom at all, but asking God but not really believing in God and they're just up and they're down and they're here and they're there and, and they're violently thrashing around in their life. That person, the one without faith, James says, who doubts should not expect to get anything from God. Why not? Because you don't have real faith. You're not really asking for wisdom from God if you don't really believe that he can give it or that he exists. James says not only that you're an unstable man, but you are a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. So not just in prayer, not just in trials, but in all your ways, unstable and double-minded. Do you see how dangerous it is not to have faith in every area of your life? In, later in James, in chapter 4, James kind of brings it home even, even more And the trouble with being double-minded, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Now, that's not a message we hear a lot today, is it? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Before that, he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Look at all that God says about the double-minded person, the person who does not have faith As he explained in chapter 1, he says, draw near to God. The implication is you're not near God when you're double-minded. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're not right with God when you're double-minded, when we are missing faith. Faith is a defining attribute of the one who is not double-minded. He's near to God. His, His heart inside and outside his actions has been cleansed and purified. He's humble before God. He's in a constant state of trust and dependence on God, knowing that he can't do it himself. He's asking God for wisdom. He's living as God would have, and he's growing into steadfastness and maturity in his faith. Faith in life, throughout life, not just for salvation, reveals whether faith is real. So this is, this is a big issue for us. Are we going to be people of faith in all of our life, or are we going to be people who say that we're people of faith and, and only have faith when we think it's important to have faith, but we'll handle the rest? The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 113, I hate the double-minded. Can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine thinking that? The psalmist says that. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. That's what he says. Again, the implication there is there's love for God and his word, or there's being double-minded and not having faith and not living the way God calls us to live. So let's evaluate our life to see if it is a life of faith. And we'll talk about what to do when we find areas that don't have faith invading them in a few minutes, but first, what areas do we need to look for faith? 
Well, Abram lives that out here in Genesis chapter 14, this chapter that we just read in three arenas of life, working from really big down to the very small and personal, faith is evident in every area of life for believers. The first one, number one, in verses one through 12, the person of faith trusts the Lord in world events, world events, the big stuff that's happening all around us. Verses 1 through 12 talk about the massive movements of kings and city-states and, and things that are beyond any of our control. That, that's what verses 1 through 12 are talking about. You have four kings, Shinar, the kings of Shinar, Elisar, Elam, and Goyim. They join together. And they find out. They say, you know what, if we go and we conquer this per, these people, this city, we can take all their stuff. Right, And we can get more powerful, we can get stronger, we can have whatever we want. So we'll go around this coalition of four strong kings and we'll just destroy people and take all their stuff. It's a really bad thing to happen, right? I mean, this is not a world that you really want to live in. But they also discover sometimes if we keep the people alive, we conquer them but keep them alive, we can just keep taking their stuff. They'll keep making more stuff and we'll keep taking their stuff and this will work out really well. The deal is we'll let you live and you keep giving us stuff, right? So that's what they did. The five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela agreed to that for 12 years. 12 years, they keep taking all of our stuff. Well, in the 13th year, they said, we've had enough. No more of that, right? They start singing, we're not gonna take it. <laughs> okay. We're not going to take it. They rebelled. It takes till the next year, the 14th year, that the four kings say, we need to come into the land. And what they did is, what we, what we read here in, in verses 5 through, through 8, 5 through 7, was that they made a really big show of going all around the land to show these five kings who's boss. We, we defeated um, the strong warrior giants, the Rephaim. We conquered the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, the Amorites. They turned back and, and made sure. They were just making this big show. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to rebel against us? And the five kings said, absolutely, we're sure. We're going to come and we're going to stand and fight. But in the middle of all of these massive movements is Abram and his family living in the land. And he's not weak or poor, but he's nothing against all of these nations, city-states, peoples moving. And there's wars, and there are slaughters that are happening. And, and, and it's just appalling because the whole idea is striking fear into the people of the land so that they'll obey, right? But it starts to get really close to home as the four powerful kings invade the land and the five kings that were standing up to them flee. They run away. They start losing. There's a slaughter. It's a, it's a rout in this war. And so they start running away. Now, the, the passage here tells us in verse 10 that there were bitumen pits, tar pits, um, in that valley. And some of the kings fell into them. And, and the word may be better translated, fell themselves or threw themselves into it. They're hiding in the pits while the rest of them are out running to the mountains to get away from these armies. But it's just a disaster. The four kings sweep across the land. They take everything away from all the kings and all of their people, and then they leave. They head north out of the land. They say, we've taken everything we want, and they're gone. So when it's all over, Abram is still in the land, and he's alone. But as we've said, he's never really alone. The Lord God is with him. So even as he's watching these massive movements and wars and slaughters and, and a plundering, he trusts 
in the Lord. He trusts in the God who made promises to him because the Lord is the one who is sovereign over all peoples, over all countries, kings, wars, and circumstances. You have these in your notes. I'll just read them briefly. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All of the nations God is in charge of. Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. God's in charge. Psalm 66, 7 says, God rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. God's watching them. He's controlling them. In fact, Proverbs 21, 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God's sovereign. He's in control. He's, he's, he's in control of all of these movements The question is, is that the God that you worship and that you serve? The God who is all-powerful, the God who sees and watches and knows everything and who's, who's running everything ultimately, is that the God that you run to, that you trust, that you have faith in? If, if that's our God, why would you ever fret about external circumstances that you have no control over, but you know the one who does, the one who controls over it with wisdom and love? The most powerful among us is under God's control. Yet, worry and anxiety about world events is at an all-time high. World events like war, there's war happening in the Ukraine and, and we're involved but not really and we're helping but somewhat and, and th- there's the bigger threat of maybe Russia and China joining together and becoming this really powerful coalition who start bullying other people. There's, there's war, there's, there's a possibility of war, there's rumors of wars, there's sickness like COVID or monkeypox. I mean, you know, the, the ones that are going around and, and the, it, it, they're going to get worse. We're, we're reading in the news, right? Because of global warming, the, the secret viruses that have been hiding under the ice are going to to come out and get us. I mean, there's the boogeyman in, in the sicknesses. There's, there's government overreach and, and corruption and school shootings. There's inflation. There's recession. There, there's all these things that are going on all around us all the time in the world, and we don't have any control over them. So war anxiety, anticipatory anxiety, anxiety about world events, anxiety about the 24-7 news cycle, trouble everywhere. It's at an all-time high in people's hearts and minds. And these are very real events and struggles all over the world. How do we live in a world like this as people of faith? Psalm 119, 92 says, this is the psalmist speaking to the Lord, and and this is the cry of my heart as well. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. There's so much going on out there. I, I I can't blame anybody out in the world for being anxious. I can't blame anybody for worrying and, and not having answers and not having something to hold on to. I can't blame people for that at all. If we didn't have the word of God for our foundation, if we didn't know who God is, if we didn't know who Jesus was, I would have just, I would have perished in my affliction. <laughs> Things would just be too much to handle. But Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. In today's language, some trust in tanks and jets and missiles and nuclear bombs. And some people trust in money and and these things. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's where our faith is. He is who our faith is. He is where our faith is placed. Isaiah 31, 1 
says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It would be so hard to live in this world without faith in the one who's controlling all things. So even in the middle of troubling world events, all things happening around Abram and and all that he's seeing, Abram held firm to the Lord. Well, how do we know? Because he stays right where he is. He doesn't change anything. (laughs) He just stays right in the land that God told him to stay into. Remember before there was famine in the land? Abram says, I'm out of (laughs) here. I'm going to go provide for myself down in Egypt. There were two things that he was doing, though. If we'll jump ahead for just a second, verse 13. He said he has allies. The word there is covenant. Chapter 14, verse 13 says that he's got allies. He's he's made covenants with some people around him that can help him. And verse 14, uh, he's got some trained men. He's been training men in the event that some of these events could affect him. So we see that it's not wrong to, to train. It's not wrong to be ready for things that can happen. You know, we're not saying we're all just going to be sticking our heads in the sand and saying we're just trusting God, trusting God, trusting God. We are trusting God. We do trust the Lord. But while we trust the Lord, it's okay to make plans, to be prepared, to, to have allies and, and to train, to be ready. Our hope is not in those. Our hope is in the Lord. But contrast that with Lot. We saw that Lot, back in chapter 13, he went and moved his tent near Sodom. Here in chapter 14, verse 12, Lot's now inside Sodom. He's living in that city. Something had to have changed for Lot because, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2, Lot was a righteous man. Lot wasn't like the men and women of Sodom. Uh, Peter says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, that he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. So we need to be careful that we're not condemning Lot. But it appears that he's moved inside that infamously wicked city for protection from these armies that are about to sweep through the area, rather than Abram who held firm in the land and held firm to God's promises. Abram exclusively trusts the Lord even when there are things happening outside of his control, well outside of his control. So a person of faith trusts the Lord in world events, things that are happening all around. But number two, things get to be a little bit closer to home. Verses 13 through 16, the person of faith trusts the Lord in personal trials. Not just big world events, but personal trials that affect us as people, as families. Now, there's an escapee that makes it to Abram, the, the, the Hebrew, and that's the first time that word is used, Hebrew. The word could mean someone who crosses over, Hebrew crossed, uh, Abram crossed over the river to become Abram, the Hebrew, or it could just mean a descendant of Eber, but whatever it mean, whichever one of those it means, Abram becomes the first Hebrew, the father of the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, as they would be called later on. But the escapee comes to Abram, and, and he tells him what happened. And without a second thought, as far as we can tell from the text, Abram says, all right, let's go get him. Right? As soon as he heard, he led forth his trained men. Now, he's got 318 of them. It doesn't seem to include the allies' soldiers, but however many they had, it couldn't have been a lot. They've got this insignificant force. As far as those four kings were concerned, when they came sweeping through the land, they just said, uh, we're not even going to bother with those people. But this small force led by Abram comes against that invading army, 
and they, they capture them, they overtake them, and they defeat them, and then they chase them another 120 miles north, and, and catching up and taking everything back from them. And Abram brought back Lot and everything, and everything he had. Now, what would have made Abram act like that? What could possibly have convinced Abram that this was the thing to do? Right? His, his nephew has just been taken by an invincible army. I have a great idea. I'm going to go get him back. <laughs> right? It was his faith in the Lord. Now, not because he just thought, well, I can just do whatever I want, but because God had told him, I'm going to make a great nation of you. You're going to, your descendants are going to be as many as the dust of the earth. So if you can count the dust, you can count your offspring. Abram says, look, I know I can't die. <laughs> I'm invincible because God said, I'm going to have a lot of children and I don't have any yet. So I'm going to go fight this. And God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse the one who curses you. He knew that God was on his side. He knew that God was going to fight for him. So his action, his decision, his behavior was decisive, and it was fixed based on God's promises. Now, he had some really specific promises from God to him that we don't have, so we can't decide to just go out and do whatever we want because, well, I'm not going to die. I can't claim Abram's promises to myself. But what promises do I have from God? What promises do we have from God? What promises are we acting on? Are we taking at God's face value to understand, to know, to live out. Sometimes, for people of faith, war may be necessary. It was for Abram. Sometimes fighting and defending is necessary. Standing up for what's right, standing up for what's just may be necessary for people of faith. It can be time to stand up militarily, politically, even personally for what's right, And whatever we're doing, whether we stand and wait or we stand and fight, we do so in faith in the Lord's promises, in the Lord's word. And that's true whether we're talking about personal trials that are physical or spiritual. Battling sin in ourselves, act on God's promises. Trust in God's word. Helping one another to battle sin. Your faith helps you to do that, to stand together, to fight do I need to go to my school district board meeting and, and stand up and say something? Do, do I need to say something or do something politically? Do I need to, to go into some area physically and, have, and there's a physical trial? I do so in faith. If, if there's a spiritual trial, I go through it in faith. How does Abram model this for us? Well, there are four ways. And first, in verses 13 and 14, he acts wisely. He acts wisely. Again, he forms alliances with those around him. He trains men for war just in case they're needed. Again, he's not sticking his head in the sand and just saying, I trust God, I trust God, I trust God. He uses what God has given to prepare the best way he can. And then he trusts God with his preparation, with his training, with what he's done. In personal trials, brother or sister, do you act wisely? Have you been preparing? Have you been training, growing close to those people around you who can help you and and training yourself to to flee from temptation, to make no provision for the flesh, to to be sold out to, to the Lord so that faith is invading every area of your life? Are you preparing? Are you acting wisely to prepare? Again, whether that's physical or whether that's spiritual trials. Next, Abram acts in verse 14. He acts courageously. With courage, courageously, he led out his men. Who were they going up to fight against? 
A band of gypsies? No, again, it was that seemingly invincible army, right? There were four powerful kings who'd wiped out everybody that stood against him, but Abram says, I've got God's word on my side. I've got his promises, and I'm going to live on that. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 tells us to be on guard. He says, stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, brother or sister. Be strong. Now, the hero of this, as we'll see and as we know, is not Abram, it's God. But God's man, Abram here, living in faith, was courageous because of God, because of his belief, his faith, his trust in God. He acts, verse 15, also prudently. Say, hey, that's a synonym of wisely. I know you can put wisely again if you want, but uh, prudently here because just as he trusts in the Lord, he knows God works through means. God works through means most of the time. So Abrams comes up with three tactics to his advantage. He launches a surprise attack first. The army never saw this coming, right? They thought they just swept through the land, they've taken care of all the armies, and now they're on their way out. They, They never saw this coming. He launched a surprise attack. Number two, Abram attacked at night. Not only did they not see this coming, they literally didn't see this coming. It was dark, and there's no light. So Abram attacks in a surprise attack. He attacks at night. And then number three, he divided his forces so that they could attack from multiple angles, from all sides. He comes at them. You know, the armies just had to be terrified about what was happening. How do you act when action is called for? Are you... Are you watching for sin? When we're talking spiritual trials, when we've got spiritual difficulties, are you watching for sin? Are you, are you paying attention to that? And when you see it, how do you attack it? Do you put up a half-hearted, half-hearted defense like, well, I shouldn't do that, but oh well, I'm not strong enough and God will just forgive me in Jesus anyway. Is that how we handle spiritual attacks and temptations to sin? When you see sin in others' lives, how do you attack that? Or do you attack the person? Do you go after the person or do you, do you come alongside the person and help them attack the sin from multiple angles, from people who are helping? When various trials come at you, have you been preparing and wisely training to be able to handle them? Are, are you responding with courage to handle the trials that come because of God who fights for you and with you? And are you prudently acting rather than rashly, rather than half-heartedly, ra- rather than just, oh, I never saw this coming? But finally, Abram models for us this life of faith in verse 16 when he acts compassionately. He acts compassionately because who was Abram rescuing? His nephew Lot, the very one who took advantage of his kindness and took the best of the land, right? The one who gave in and moved inside the wicked city of Sodom instead of staying in the land. The one who followed Abram at the beginning when Abram said, I've got to leave all of you behind, he said, I'm coming with you. I mean, you look at this lot, and he shouldn't even have been in the land, let alone inside Sodom. He shouldn't have been in trouble at all. But, but Abram says, he, he made some decisions, but he's family. I'm going after him. And he brought him out, along with the women and the people. He didn't just get his nephew. He could have just said, look, guys, give me Lot and his stuff, and I'll be out of here, and you guys can go your way. I don't care about anybody else. But he, he rescued the women and the people who were there also. And who were those people? The wicked people of Sodom. The wicked people that the Bible calls them. The the great sinners. Abram even compassionately cared for the worst of the people. 
despite what Lot had done, despite who the people were, despite Lot, I mean, Abram needing to, to protect his own family, he acted in faith in the Lord's promises in fixed determination. And the effect was God was fulfilling his, pro, pro, his promise to Abram to make him a great nation. He's now a force to be reckoned with. Which of God's promises do you hold on to, brother, sister, that enable you to act in faith in personal trials? When things get really close to home, those things out there that we can't control, we're trusting in the Lord's hands. The things that happen to us, we've got to be trusting the Lord in faith to take care of. Are there promises? Do you know any promises of God? Do you know what his promises are to help you in life and to see you through to the end? When, when you learn those promises, which ones do you hold on to? Which ones do you forget so often? What does it look like when you forget God's promises? We need to be in his word. That's why we've got to be in his word, preparing and training and helping one another to, to be ready. Hold yourself accountable. Ask others to hold you accountable. Be ready to hold others accountable. Look, here's what God's word has said. Do you believe this? Do you trust this? This is who our God is, the one who will see us through, the one who can make a promise and keep the promise. So the person of faith trusts the Lord in external events, in world events, and in personal trials. But there's even a a step closer that we see here that's covered by our faith. Number three, verses 17 to 24, the person of faith trusts the Lord in unexpected temptation. Unexpected temptation. Now we say unexpected here because you know, when you see temptation coming, you, you, you kind of get ready and, and you have time and you say, all right, I, you know, I see that this could be an issue, so I'm gonna prepare for, I'm gonna prepare for that. But when you don't see a temptation coming, when you're leaning on your own understanding instead of trusting the Lord, Well, that's when we get into trouble, even bigger trouble. In verses 17 to 24 here at the end of this chapter, as Abram returns home after defeating this great army, he's got to be at a high point. There's a celebration, there's a victory that he's just won, and and they want to celebrate with him. The people who are there, there are two kings who come out to celebrate with him, and they are two kings who have opposing views on life and on celebrating victory. One points Abram rightly to glorifying the Lord. The other prevents, uh, presents a, a temptation to glorify himself. You have the king of Sodom in verse 17. The other king is the king of Salem in verse 18. The king of Salem is king over the city called Salem, the city of peace, Hebrews 7 says. It, it, he's, the, he's the king over this city that's a peaceful city. And he's the, the king of righteousness. That's what his name Melchizedek means. King of righteousness. King of peace. The, the city of Salem would later be called Jebus, where the Jebusites lived. And then when David conquered it, it would be called Jerusalem. This king of righteousness, this king of peace is also a priest of God most high. Now with all those descriptions of this person, many people believe this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. This is uh, Jesus before he was born and, and became a man. This is just Jesus taking on human form and looking like a person. Other people believe Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's a real person, but, but he's a, a picture or example 
or a pattern in the Old Testament that's fully developed in the New Testament. And that's a discussion for another time, types, anti-types, whatever. For now, let's just take the text as it stands. He's a man who's a king of a city of peace. He's a king of righteousness. He's a priest of the Most High God. What's a priest? A priest is a person who stands between you and God. God is too great. God is too big. God is too holy. God is too pure and too powerful for us just to stroll into his throne room and say, what's up, God? How's it going? Here's the things that I need. If you could do that by Wednesday, that'd be great. I'll see you next time. <laughs> God is not the God that we can just come before and just say, hey, God, you know, I'm, I'm here to worship. We can't even do that. We are sinful and rebellious people, and God says you cannot come before me. You can't even look at God. We don't have the right to go before God, so we need someone to come between us to, to, to bring us to God. And so the priest was the person who did that. He's the one that offers our sacrifices to get God's forgiveness. He's the one who tells us what God says. The priest is the one who brings our requests to God. And, and the people needed a priest, but that's still true for us today. We still need a priest you say, well, then how come we don't have one in our church? Because we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings us to God. He's the one who, who brings our prayer requests to God and who offers them for us and, and intercedes for us. He's the one that brings our, his perfect sacrifice so that we can come and get God's forgiveness so that we can come before God. That's the whole point in the New Testament epistle of Hebrews about how Jesus is so much better than Melchizedek. But Melchizedek was even greater than Abram because Abram gives a tenth of what came from the spoils to, to him. And, and the whole Levitical priesthood that would come through Abram and Isaac and Jacob down to Levi and that whole line of priests was all inside Abram and Abram was submissive to Melchizedek. But Jesus is far above him. And that's what we learn about in the New Testament. But this priest king comes to Abram, and here's what he says. He, in verse 18, he brings out bread and wine. Well, that's, that's typical food. I mean, that's a cheeseburger and fries. <laughs> you know, uh, this is just what everybody ate at the time. It, bread saves better than meat or, or vegetables, so, so they, they baked bread, and wine keeps better than water. And so he brought that out, and he brought out typical food. He says, okay, let's eat together. And then he brings a blessing, and the, and the blessing, blessed be Abram, is outward first. He says, successful is Abram, victorious and successful and favored is Abram. Why? Because he was so great? No, by God most high. Blessed be Abram by God most high. Not any of the false gods around, not an idol, not himself. The, the God most high, there is no other God. There's no one exalted, lifted up, and, and worthy of any blessing or praise than this one God most high. There's no one in that extreme place of elevation like the true and living God. He's so high and lifted up, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. He made everything. He owns it all. There's no competing God. There's only one all-powerful God most high. And he says this in the presence of unbelievers because they needed to hear it also. But this blessing is pronounced outward and upward. It's also directed to God most high. Why? Because he's been 100% successful in making a promise and delivering on that promise. He has delivered your enemies into your hand. God did that, Abram, not you, right? Who were your enemies? The four 
king coalition force of power that had entered the land. The giant people couldn't stand up against them. The Amalekites, the Amorites, none of the people, the five kings couldn't stand up against them. But you did with your 318 guys and a small band of allies because God delivered them into your hand. So Abram is blessed by God Most High. God Most High is blessed because he's the one who gave the victory. This is this is the one that, that Abram is pointed to by Melchizedek. Now, what Abram could have done, what we might have done, is gotten all excited about the victory because that's what we so often do. Yeah, I won a victory. Yeah, I had something good happen. Yeah, I overcame sin in this area. And now we let our guard down. We, we kind of, we, we get that victory. We, we get energized and exhilarated. And we find ourselves victorious and then the temptation sneaks up from behind us and gets us without us noticing or, look, or, or, or realizing it. Melchizedek comes and points Abram to God. Abram agrees, yep, that it was God, and he agrees by putting his, his money where his mouth is. He gave a tenth of everything right off the top. But the other king comes, the king of Sodom comes, with a different way of looking at things. The king of Sodom, and Sodom, again, you remember, is that wicked city made up of great sinners. It's so wicked. Sodom was so wicked that today, 3,000 years later, in our language, we have an entire word that means a disgusting practice. Sodomy comes from Sodom, this city, 3,000 years later. Instead of the king of peace, the king of righteousness, a, a priest of the Most High God, we see this king of wickedness and sin. And he says to Abram, something tricky, something deceitful. Something worldly here. If Abram had let his guard down, he might have been taken by it. But here's what he says, verse 21, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. And it's such a simple statement. It's seemingly just harmless. It's expected, right? I mean, you won the battle, Abram. Take what you've earned. And what he's really saying is, Abram, you won. You did it. Take the rewards, all of the stuff. You've earned this, Abram. Take it for who? For yourself, right? You're a self-made man. You don't need to bless God. You don't need to praise God for any of that stuff. This was your victory. You did it. Celebrate you. Celebrate what you did. And the implication by the king of Sodom here is, is I own all of this, all of the people and all the stuff. I'll give you all the stuff. You give me the people. And rather than bread and wine, rather than the cheeseburgers and fries <laughs> that Melchizedek brought out, I'll just give you everything. Just do this my way. Can you hear the world's words echoing in the king of Sodom? You deserve this. You've earned this. When temptation comes along, you've had a really strong victory. You're excited about something, and, and something's just gone really well, and I must be blessed by God, and, and I'm just going to get all excited and up about it, and it's okay to be joyful, but not to let our guard down. Because the world will tell us, it's the cry of the world, you should have this, you're entitled to this, you've earned this, do this for you, do this for you, you want this, you need this, you've got to have it. Take the fruit, Eve. Take his life, Cain. Take multiple wives, Lamech. Take what you can get in Egypt, Abram. Right, that's the cry of the world to us and to all of these people. But this time, Abram is ready. And he responds in verse 22, I have lifted my hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, the one who owns everything, who controls everything. I'm not on your side, king of Sodom. I'm not on my side. I'm on his side. 
He said, I already knew I would be successful at this because God told me that I would be successful at this. So I made this promise beforehand. I'm gonna take none of the glory. I'm gonna take none of the credit. God gets it all. He says, I am what I am only by the grace of God. I have what I have only by the grace of God. Not because of what I get for myself. Not because of what I do. My oath to the Lord is, I'm not even gonna take a thread or a sandal strap lest you get any glory or any credit, king of Sodom. You'll get none of what rightly belongs to God most high. I'm not a self-made man. I'm not a, a, a good networking person. I, I'm not a good warrior or strategic person. I'm not a, a, a strong person. I am a follower of God. I have faith in God, and he's done this. And I'll take nothing but what I need to get through this world. Let these men take their share, but as for me and my house, Abram says, effectively, I will serve the Lord. Would you see through this temptation? It's so similar to the temptations that Satan leveled at Jesus that were so subtle and so insidious. And you know, Jesus, just take these stones and turn them to bread. Don't trust God to provide for you. Do it yourself. You deserve it. You've earned it. Tempt God by jumping off the temple. See if he really cares about you. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the stuff. Give me the persons and take the stuff. Those were the temptations that Satan called to Jesus. And the world will call us and Satan will call us and our flesh will want to go and want to follow. But we cannot, we cannot give in to those temptations. When we don't see them as temptations, when they're unexpected, that's when we need to draw close to the Lord in faith. Abram was ready, but Lot, where did Lot go? right back to Sodom. He followed him right back to Sodom. We are in this world, brothers and sisters, but we cannot live in this world as part of this world. We must live in this world, but not of this world, because 1 John 5 tells us, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Now, you've got some... Uh, a list in your notes here, and, and there are, are this, this is a list that's hopefully helpful to you. We, we don't have time to develop these or to discuss these, but sometimes there are things that happen in life that, man, this, this temptation is so tricky. This is so difficult to see through. Is this a blessing from God, or is this a temptation from the world or from Satan? Is, is this a temptation to my, to my flesh? How do I tell the difference? I came up with seven considerations. Now, there are probably more. And you can get together in koinonia groups, you can get together as families and, and think about more ways to tell the difference. But I found seven, and seven's a nice little number that we, that we like to use. So seven, uh, God's blessings. Here, here we go. God's blessings will never require, number one, indebtedness to the world. Indebtedness to the world. Abram would have owed everything to the king of Sodom if he had taken what he was offering to him. That was not a blessing from God to get all the stuff. Th that was a temptation. The blessing from God was... Be content with what you have to eat, and I'll provide, right? God's blessings will never require indebtedness to the world. Number two, they will never require compromise to God's truth or to his word. You know, if I take this, what does it mean about my relationship with God, my, my relationship to his truth? Well, I have to compromise in the truth. Number three, God's blessings will never require distance between you and God's people, there's not going to be distance. I, you know, if I take this blessing from God, then I can't go to church anymore. I can't be a part of a fellowship. I, 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 can't, um, I can't be around God's people. 
God, that's not a blessing from God. Number four, God's blessings will never require giving up your relationship with God. Your relationship with the Lord is to be growing, growing all the time, every day, growing closer to him, not farther away from him. So if you, if you, if you can tell, you know, if I take this, if I accept this, I'm not going to be growing in the Lord. That's not a blessing from God. That's a temptation. Number five, God's blessings will never require more for you to be content. You know, this was really good, but I need more. I got to be happy. I need to be content. And to be content, I got to have more. That's not a blessing from God. That's a temptation from the world. Number six, God's blessings will never require you to keep them to yourself. When God gives us a blessing, it's a blessing to be given to the people around us. It's a blessing for all of us. He's given it to us to steward for his glory. Number seven, God's blessings will never require you to keep them by yourself. You know, I got to hold on to this. With everything I've got, I got I to gotta grab onto it. And this, uh, this has to be the most important thing in my life. That's not a blessing from the Lord. Now, some of the blessings of God we can turn into temptations and we can do the wrong things with. So these are not foolproof. But work together as families. Work together as a church family. Understand that there are some things that can happen that can be blessings from God. Material, spiritual, otherwise. But sometimes it's a temptation from the Lord. So our application, let's end considering that we need to examine ourselves. Examine yourself to find where your spoken faith has not invaded every area of your life. From the large events that are happening all around us to the, the personal events, the trials that happen to us, the unexpected temptations, everything from big to small, everything in between, where has my spoken faith not invaded areas of my life? Where am I not living by faith? You're thinking, you're feeling, you're acting, you're speaking. And finally, surrender to your good, powerful Lord Jesus Christ. Find those areas where we're not living in faith and turn them over to the Lord. Believe in him and fervently act, passionate, intensively act for the Lord, for his good, for his glory, because he's working for your good and for his glory. Father, we praise you. We, we lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus God, because we can do nothing on our own. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Lord, he told us that, and we know that, and we believe that. We've tried on our own. Lord, we've tried to do things on our own, and, and God, when we do that, we're, it, it just it falls apart. God, even when it's worldly successful, it does not bring you the glory that you're deserving of, that you're worthy of. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds. God, we ask this every week, that you would work in our hearts and minds because, God, that's where you operate. Lord, you control us from within, and then as you are working there, God, you, you change our actions, our words, our feelings, our thoughts, our behavior. God, we don't want to do that because we want to be better people. Father, we don't pray that so that people will notice us. God, this is how we grow in our relationship with you. This is how we grow in, in reflecting the image of our Savior, Jesus, to those around us. Father God, we pray that you would do that. Lord, you would show us where we are not living in faith, that you would help us to surrender those areas to you. God, thank you for all that you do within us. Thank you for how you are in control of the world. God, we don't see that clearly all the time. Father, there's so many things that are happening, but God, I pray that you would teach us to believe in your goodness, your power, your sovereignty. Lord, we praise you. 
We thank you, Lord, especially as we come together tomorrow to thank you for uh, our country that you have given to us. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be better citizens here in this country. Father, that we would be even better citizens of our heavenly country, your kingdom. God, use us to spread the gospel, to make disciples. Lord, to live differently from the world so that people will see that and glorify you in heaven. We praise you for our Savior in his precious and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.